Welcome to the Collective Evolution Show. The CE Show is a podcast that will feature anything from discussions to reports on a variety of topics, all framed within the context of transformation that is occurring within us individually and collectively as a society. You could probably relate to the fact that our current world seems to be falling apart and that things are becoming quite chaotic, and making sense of what's going on has become really tough. Old ways of viewing the world don't seem to be working anymore, so people are looking for new conversations. Many are noticing that much of traditional or mainstream media or even academia seem to be failing at understanding and exploring the cultural transitions and changes that are happening in people and society. The reality is that we've arrived at a time where we have to start talking about these emerging ideas that come from an entirely different narrative about what it means to be a human and what we're capable of. On this podcast, we'll talk about anything from current events to personal transformation, consciousness, future technology, and more. We'll explore real things that are happening in our world that are inspiring, but that may not be explored too much in pop culture or media. Of course, these topics can all be explored on our website as well at collective-evolution.com, where you'll find articles, essays, and videos. You can also join our membership platform called CTV, where we have a ton of exclusive video content, including original shows, discussions, and courses to help you make sense of the world and transform how you show up in life. You can visit CTV.one to check out our member area. So we're here uh, going to be having a chat with uh, Dr. Madhava Sethi again, gaining some clarity around the COVID-19 vaccine. It's a, it's a very... Uh, I guess you could say in-depth topic that a lot of people are looking for clarity on that are feeling like, you know, is this a vaccine? Is this not a vaccine? Um, a lot of different views here. And uh, let's break this down. We're going to break this down using nine key points to kind of go through a meaningful discussion around this. Now, Madhava, I know you had um, something you wanted to say off the top about uncertainty and exploring this stuff. Uh, you want to go with that? Yes, Joe, that, that I think is really important here um, because, uh, our need for for certainty around things has manifested in something that's very, very obvious when you listen to the conversations coming from both sides. On the one hand, you have people who say, whatever the CDC says must be the truth. Uh, on the other hand, you have the other folks that are saying everything they say must be a must be a prevarication. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. And the need to believe in something 100% is where we lose the signal. Um, And that's what's important here is that I really believe that the truth is in between these two points. Sometimes it's not very, um, people don't want to hear that. They want to believe in absolute certainty about their position. So what I would like to do, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, address your audience, is uh, pick out nine points that are extremely important when defining or attempting to define what is actually happening here. So um, point number one, people are talking about the large number of deaths uh, that have occurred since the beginning of phase three trials. Like, look, there's something wrong with the vaccine. Like six people died. Six people died. Why is anyone talking about that? Well, the reality is we're looking at a pool of 40,000 people. And uh, what's interesting here is that 40,000 people, you would expect people to die every day, every week. And as a matter of fact, um, 
in a two month period, which is what, you know, roughly we're looking at with the phase three trials, you would expect, uh, let's see, 66 people to die in an average pool of citizenry of yeah. 40,000, which is interesting, right? Because if that's what's expected, why are there only six deaths? So my point here is that's not a large number of deaths and nowhere does it attribute the injection to the death. These are deaths that occurred potentially from the vaccine, but also more realistically, they just died, um, which is to be expected. The real question is why are there so few deaths? There should have been more than 60, right? And that gets to point number two, which is the reason why there's so few deaths is because we're vaccinating a very healthy swath of our population. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem? Not necessarily, but notice that the vaccine is intended to, you know, uh, support or help the ones that have heart disease, COPD, you know, chronic lung diseases. But that's not who is being trialed here. We are looking at a population where 80% of the uh, participants actually have no comorbidities. Right. And Joe, you know, like I think we all know that, you know, over 90% of the people uh, who die from COVID have comorbidities. So we're actually trialing this on a different swath of the population. That's something to keep in consideration as a, as a, a point in our minds as we look at the validity of the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. We're looking at healthy people. Yeah. So what I'm hearing here is if we were to take a more representative sample of cohorts inside these studies of what's actually out there in terms of, you know, the general U.S. population, um, you know, young, maybe more older people, maybe more people that had, um, uh, it, you know, serious illnesses or com comorbidities, we would have saw naturally, we would have saw a great amount of deaths. But even with the vaccine, we're seeing such a low number of deaths because essentially what's happening is they chose a cohort for this study that's really not representative of the population of the United States. Correct. It's not yeah. representative of the population of the United States, and it's actually less representative of the people who should be gaining the most benefit from vaccine protection from this disease. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's important to keep in mind. Recently, an article came out, you may or may not be aware of this, but um, the CDC says severe allergic reactions to the COVID vaccine run 10 times higher than the flu shot, but yet they're still rare. What do you make of a, of a headline like that? I know it's only a headline because I, I just actually came across this this morning. Um, and just just that alone. So it's like we have we know the flu shot is actually one of the it causes the most uh, issues. We also know that the most of the compensation in the Vaccine Injury Act actually comes from the flu shot. Um, mm -hmm. And so with the COVID vaccine being 10 times higher in terms of allergic reactions that are severe, um, they're still saying it's rare. What, is, what, is, what does that feel to you right off the top, having not yet read this article? So Joe, you're right. I, I have not read that uh, paper from the CDC. Um, and it's you're right. It's interesting. Why are they uh, letting us know that the uh, potential for allergic reaction to the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine is 10 times higher than the flu. I don't know. I would, I would imagine that um, the fact that they're admitting it means that it's real um, and you have to give them credit for that. They're not you know, just sweeping everything under the rug. 
and hoping that no one notices. Um, and it's, I'm not going to say that it was expected. We have no idea. And that's really, you know, where we need to be very uh, aware is that this is a new kind of vaccine and we're still in phase three trials. You know, this, when we say that we have this vaccine that's ready to go, not by all the standards uh, in the past, we have not, we're in phase three trials. So these things come up. How important is this? We have to be seen. That's, that's where we are actually. You know, a, a lot of the questions we have around this vaccine, we can't answer despite the fact that the narrative is, is basically saying, oh, it's safe and efficacious. But that's based on very, very preliminary observations. Yeah. Is uh, given that this is such a new vaccine, it's like, you know, experimental type of vaccine in the sense that hasn't really been done before. Um, but we often see these PR stunts is what I like to call them. Um, but that's my, my bias on thinking that they're not real. Um, but when you see these high level politicians, Mike Pence, so on and so forth, taking the COVID vaccine on camera, um, it, I mean, I feel like they're not really taking the vaccine. Why would they give some of the most powerful people in the United States a highly experimental vaccination? And a lot of these people are in high risk age groups. Like it just seems crazy. What's your take on that? Well, you can't discount the fact that it is a PR stunt. Yeah. Possible. You know, no one's saying that we know for sure. Um, but to, you know, to, to contrast that with, uh, there's also the very public uh, refusal or, you know, um, the, of the uh, CEO of Pfizer saying that, you know, I'm not going to take it. Let's let's save it for the uh, the people on the front lines. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, in my mind, unless he's been living, you know, under a rock for the last couple of years, his um, willingness to, to take the shot would have done so much for his credibility, mm -hmm. right? But to say, you know, to, to come up with this, well, I'm not going to waste these two doses on me, little old me. Um, I'd rather give it to a physician or a nurse or someone who's exposed. I mean, come on, seriously? You know, yeah. seriously? Like there's 40 million, you know, things, you know, doses that you're putting out there. Take the shot publicly and say, look, I'm going to take you know, my own product here. I believe in it, yeah. whether or not he actually gets, you know, the shot or not. But like that is like, to me, that was like, the, like a huge faux pas, yeah, a yeah, blunder, yeah. really. Yeah. Now it makes sense with number three, getting into uh, some of the aluminum or metal adjuvants um, with this. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, here I'd like to address the, you know, the very, very reasonable uh, and serious concern that, um, uh, I would say the, the vaccine cautionary folks uh, hold on to, which is the use of aluminum salts as adjuvants uh, in vaccines in the past with live attenuated viruses. That's not what we have here. You know, we, we don't have, we, there's no aluminum in it. Right. Of course, I don't know that for certain, but that is what the protocols have said. If you look at the ingredients of the vaccines, there's no aluminum salts. Uh, that's very important to keep in mind because the reason why I think this is so important is that when you use the, oh my gosh, you know, vaccines have aluminum, they get into your brain and organs. Why would you take the vaccine? And then people say, well, I just looked at the, I just looked at the ingredients. There's no aluminum in it. And so they throw the whole argument away yeah. about the potential uh, side effects of this mRNA vaccine. You know, 
And how do we know that there's no aluminum? We, we don't know absolutely, but there would be no reason for uh, the vaccine manufacturer manufacturers to put aluminum into their formulation because as an adjuvant, what they found is that, you know, if you want to immunize someone against hepatitis B and you just give them the hep B virus attenuated, you don't actually get a big enough response. So they had to use aluminum. Here, there's no need to put aluminum into it. You're not mixing in a, a virus and you, you hope that the immune system has a, a amplified response. You're actually getting your cellular machinery to build the antigen, the thing that you want to be um, protected from. You're getting them. You're getting your cells to build it. So there would be no reason to put aluminum into their vaccine. And if they did, they would have no scientific basis to justify it. So that I'm fairly certain that there's no aluminum salt. So we should really put that aside here. That's right. what I'm asking us to do. Yeah, for for this specific vaccine, which is that's that's fair to say. Um, and then so you know, point number four here, we're starting to get into okay. Then we you know a lot of people are concerned if we do do wide dissemination of this vaccine. I mean, we don't really know what the dangers are, but um, you're kind of presenting that there might be some dangers we do know of. Um, right. What what? How would you break those down? So here is where my concern lies, which is the fact that. Um, there could be an autoimmune response following the vaccine. What do I mean by that? That means that we have instigated our immune system to react to the spike protein that is coded for in the mRNA. What's wrong with that? Well, first of all, let's acknowledge the fact that it's actually a very smart way of designing a vaccine because it is the spike protein that is thought to be the mechanism by which the virus penetrates our cells. So if we can get our immune system to glom on to that particular aspect of the envelope of the virus, it should be not only, um, it should be very protective, right? Because you have antibodies on it, they can't get into the cell, you're protected. The problem is, is what if the spike protein looks a lot like us, right? Mm -hmm. You have an autoimmune response. You jack up our immune system to fight the spike protein, but now it starts getting primed to go after us. Yeah. How do we know that this is a potential danger? Well, uh, it was Dr. James uh, Lyons Wheeler that you know put out a really interesting study and, and made a very impassioned plea to the vaccine manufacturers to say, look, hold on, before you start targeting the spike protein, notice that there are quite a few homotypes, meaning peptide chains that are in our system that look like the spike protein. And you can see on this particular um, table under spike protein, uh, there are five different places in the uh, human body where um, there's similarities. And in the S protein, and to be honest with you, when I read the uh, Pfizer protocols, they sort of interchange S protein and spike protein, but nonetheless, the S protein has six. And that was his contention is like, wait a minute, why are we, why are we choosing the part of the virus that looks the most like us? And this is a this is a reasonable concern. I'm not saying that you know you get the vaccine and you you know uh, you go into some autoimmune crisis, 
but that potential exists. That's what we should be looking for. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I hadn't heard uh, that mentioned uh, much, but to uh, I don't you know intend to go off topic here, but just to sort of build on that a little bit since we're on that discussion, um, mm-hmm. and you may be primed to talk about this or, or you maybe have looked into this or not, I'm not sure, but um, looking at, so for example, there's been a lot of discussion from uh, people like D- uh, David Martin, for example, um, or other people that have sort of raised concern about this type of vaccination, which some of them are saying, look, guys, this isn't really a vaccine. That's been their, uh, their um, observation of it. This isn't a vaccine. This is more of, you know, uh, some device that has the ability to actually genetically modify is a term that's been thrown around uh, the human body. Um, what is your take on some of that as you, I, I feel like it relates to what you said to some extent, um, but what's your take on that? Well, if I understand Dr. Martin, who I respect a great deal, um, his position on that is that uh, when you when you call it a vaccine, you are now entering um, an argument uh, that you don't want to get into. But um, if I understand that correctly, but in reality, look, when people get a shot in their arm to protect them from some sort of disease, that's a vaccination. I mean, you know, it's sort of a semantic issue, really. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I believe that his argument is around, we shouldn't have to be fighting this argument because it's not actually a vaccine. You can't escape it. You know, no one is going to sit there and say, oh, really? It's not a vaccine. I just got a shot and now I'm protected. It's not a vaccine. I mean, it, realistically speaking, there's no way to really, you know, take what he's saying and, and run with it. Yeah. And have you, do you have any thoughts on the, the genetically modified claims that are coming out where they're saying that this is this, that from the, from the agenda angle, this is more of a, Hey, put this in the human body so we can genetically modify them and be able to update the body software. These are some of the claims that have been discussed. Have you any thoughts on those? Well, first I would like to say that if you um, believe that it will genetically modify us, I, I, I understand. I mean, that's a huge fear. Um, however, as far as I know, there's no way for messenger RNA to get put into your DNA. It doesn't happen, but let's say I'm wrong about that. Let's say that, you know, it is possible somehow, or they figured out a way to do that. There's only going to be a tiny smattering of our cells that are transfected with the mRNA, right? It's not going to change our entire genome because a few, you know, muscle cells in your deltoid uh, now has this spike protein DNA that you think get puts in there. So that's where I would say, look, I understand that you're fearful about it, but I don't believe that's what's happening. I really don't. Right. Yeah. And I know that is a fear on a, on a lot of people's minds. And I mean, maybe, like you said, maybe it's too early to tell, or maybe we do know enough that says um, there's, if that's probably not what's going to happen, but um Time will tell, as with everything. I, I know one of the other key points that you have here, uh, we'll call this point number five, uh, is with relation to the, the studies again and, and potentially losing the value of the placebo control group um, oh. and what that would mean to this picture of long-term effects of a vaccine. Do you want to break that one down? Mm-hmm. So here again, <clears throat> this is now we're, we're, we're actually cutting to the chase here. This is, this is where it's very interesting how this is being played. So... <clears throat> It's on the table right now to uh, offer the vaccine to people who got the placebo because they're in high risk groups. 
in other words, you know, these are healthcare workers that are exposed to, you know, COVID-19 patients all the time, it would be unethical to let them continue when we have an efficacious vaccine, if they thought they got, you know, if they didn't know they got the placebo, right? So that is understandable. Um, the, the danger here is that um, this argument, in, in my uh, opinion, is a little bit too uh, forthright or forceful for two reasons. The first is, <clears throat> in general, if we have a trial with a uh, experimental drug, let's say, treating a bunch of very sick people where there's no other cure, right? This happens like in uh, oncology, you know, cancer uh, treatments. And you find that the people who got the new drug are doing better. At some point you say, let's stop the trial and give everybody the drug. Right. Why? Because they're dealing with a, you know, uh, a fatal illness. It would be unethical to keep going, right? Now, now we're talking about a vaccine whose efficacy has yet to be shown uh, uh, definitively. And there's an, a very low risk of dying from this disease. So when we start um, saying, oh, well, we need to vaccinate everybody because it's clearly working, we're not really at that point yet. There's no, we're, no question that we're not at that point. If someone wants to, you know, they're high risk and they believe in the vaccine, they want the other vaccine, that's fine. But what we're doing is we're whittling down the, the placebo arm, the control arm. And we're gonna lose some signal because if, if let's say we vaccinate, you know, a, a large number of the placebo people, how are we gonna know what the efficacy of the intervention was, the vaccine? How are we gonna know the safety of the vaccine? So this is, you know, here's where you have to keep an open mind and say, yeah, that's true. Are, is this being done intentionally or um, is there uh, a true ethical reason why we would want to vaccinate uh, everyone? Yeah. And it's nuanced. Yeah. And the reason, yeah. So the reason why, like, I'm raising my eyebrow is like, the disease is clearly fatal in some people. I mean, it is like, I, you know, I, I've lost family members to this disease. Um, on the other hand, is it so dangerous that we must vaccinate everybody? That's where uh, I cast some doubt on, on this approach. Right. Yeah. And that's well said. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're kind of having this discussion of, of long term effects of vaccinations is something that hasn't really been given a lot of honest discussion over the course of time and, and some of the long-term uh, studies that have looked at stuff kind of shows some interesting stuff that does require further study, you know? Um, and if we're taking that away with this, especially a new vaccine, it's almost like we may not learn anything about this new vaccine on a long-term basis, which is really important. Um, and this kind of leads us to point number six, which is uh, discussing masks a little bit and mask mandates. Um, and I know you had some interesting data that you pulled on this. Do you want to discuss that? So, look, I, I'm not a virologist and I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm an anesthesiologist and I'm good at, you know, giving anesthesia. But the other aspect of this is that I'm very familiar with the studies that are around mask efficacy in preventing the transmission of disease. Um, and we have decades long research that demonstrates that you know, they really don't do much good. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to look at those studies anymore, right? It's like, you know, COVID-19 is new. There's asymptomatic transmission. There's all of this other stuff. 
So what do we have to look at? Well, we have a very long and enormous experiment that we're running right here in this country. This is one of the, you know, few countries where mask mandates uh, have not been uh, uh, instituted across the country. We have states that don't have a mask mandate and we have states that do. Now, from this graph, uh, we can see something very interesting. The blue line is uh, the incidence per capita of new cases of COVID. Are you still there, Joe? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Um, I was so frozen that you didn't know if it was right. <laughs> you folks out there, I mean, we've had a little internet problem here. And every time, every time we freeze up, Joe has a look like this on his face. Uh, <laughs> no, did I lose him? Oh, no, he's just frozen. He's just okay. listening. <laughs> so the blue line is the, the per capita rate of daily new infections in states that have mask mandates. The yellow line is the same data point in states that have no mask mandates. So there's a couple of things that I really want people to examine here. First is that the two lines tend to match each other. They go up, they go down together. <clears throat> and because for months there has been a difference, in other words, the yellow line was higher than the blue line, it's been a talking point for people who say, oh yeah, we need Absolutely, everybody needs to have a mask on because look, the states with mask mandates have a lower new infection rate every day per capita. That's a very important point. It's like per 100,000. So it has nothing to do with the fact that there are 230 million people that are um, <clears throat> enduring mask mandates and only about you know 90 million that don't. It's the per capita. So per 100,000 people, there's a greater incidence of new infections in states that don't have a mass mandate. That's why the yellow line is a little bit higher, a little bit higher. But notice now that the lines have crossed, yeah. meaning it's an equal number of new infections, whether or not you're wearing masks. It's hard to argue with. It, it really is. In fact, you know, if we were now to use the same argument that they used against um, people who didn't want to wear masks, we could easily say, look, right now, the people who are wearing masks have a higher rate of infection. Masks must be dangerous. You know, that's, that's the equivalent argument, right? Which of course is nonsensical. Masks probably don't cause more infections, but that's the, that's the, um, that's where the argument is wrong because the reality is that transmission of this disease is dependent on so many different factors. Yeah. Mask wearing being one of the small ones, you know, we have comorbidities, we have access to healthcare. We have the nutritional status of these two populations. We have the age of these two populations, the incidence of comorbidities. It is honestly scientifically ridiculous to say, Oh, it's, it's the masks that are making a difference. It's not. And now we have proof the same level of proof that was being used to um, justify masks, that same data now demonstrates that it's no, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's something very, very important to keep in mind. I'm not saying throw away your mask and, you know, go uh, protest in large groups and cough around uh, everywhere. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, 
let us really look, examine what we have. This is an enormous um, and powerful argument, not to throw your mask away, but to be cool, you know, just, you know, before we start attacking people, when they say, um, you know, masks don't work, and then using that to attack them, it's like, oh, you, you don't wanna deal with the inconvenience of wearing a mask in order to save thousands of lives. That's, that's not fair. Yeah, because the data basically shows that we may, we're likely not even saving, quote unquote, those thousands of lives with the masks. Um, right. Yeah, and this is why I think a lot of physicians feel like the approach that we're taking right now, and, and even people who can look at the data, like us as journalists, for example, here at Collective Evolution, like, you know, we look at the science, we look at the data, we speak to people like yourself, and it's like, well, yeah, we, we're taking a very unscientific approach to the measures that we're, we're taking here. It's like we're, we're throwing it to the wind. Um, and one of the areas also that, you know, science has kind of provided a lot of information, and, and I think it's, I want to say it's also a little bit intuitive too. Like when you're not sick, like how can you make someone sick? You know, and, and I'm not saying that's true 100% of the time in every disease, but I think we know this with COVID now, and this leads to the asymptomatic, right? So the discussion can, can asymptomatic people, i.e. people that aren't apparently sick, can they be uh, spreading this disease? And the, the idea for a long time, and it kind of still is purported is that, yes, you know, they're still going to get all these people sick, but now we have the data that tells us something. You want to break that down? Yes. So it's an excellent uh, lead into this. Um, so the argument here uh, that you have articulated is that COVID is a little different because people can, tr the hypothesis is that COVID is different in that you can remain asymptomatic for some time, but still be infectious, yeah. which is, doesn't actually match what previous SARS uh, uh, viruses people who are infected with those viruses did. So how do we break this down? Um, if you go and look back at the studies that suggest that there could be asymptomatic spread of the disease, they're not actually so rigorous. Um, you know, one of the earliest articles uh, that suggested this came out in April. And it talked about what happened in a nursing home in the state of Washington. And uh, it's in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very venerated publication. And uh, I grant it a lot of uh, credence. But it was a, I thought it was puzzling because they described the scenario there, which was there was a worker at the facility that continued to come to work, even though they were symptomatic. And it led to tragic consequences. People died, uh, people got very sick, some people survived. And um, then they make the suggestion that asymptomatic people, the ones that you know, were exposed, became infected, but did not develop any symptoms, contributed to the, uh, to the, to the deaths at this facility. How can you make that conclusion when you have you know, a symptomatic person that clearly was shedding virus, viral particles, infecting a great deal of people because that person continued to come to work to care for these folks who were, you know, compromised, at least by age at the very minimum. And then say, well, you know, the, the other uh, uh, residents who were asymptomatic contributed to the spread. But yeah, that's possible. It's possible. 
but that is not conclusive. And as a matter of fact, many of the studies um, are small and they're suggestive of this. So how do we um, respond to that? Well, we have a very large study, a very powerful study that came out of Wuhan. It was published um, in I think Nature Communications uh, in November. And what they did here was they looked at the population of Wuhan. When, when the outbreak occurred there, they quarantined the entire city, right? And then when that ended, they tested everybody. They tested almost 10 million people with yeah. a PCR test. And they found uh, that in that massive population, there were 300 people who had no symptoms but tested positive. They quarantined them immediately. And then they quarantined their close contacts, almost 1,200 people. None, not a single one became symptomatic. Yeah. That's the first point. The second point is, unlike these small studies that are being um, cited as a reason to fear asymptomatic spread, these folks then got antibody testing. You know, do they have antibodies to the virus? And you will see in the study that uh, 36% of them did not actually have antibodies, right? So the best we can say is that those were false positive PCR tests. You know, the PCR test came back positive, but there's no, the, the body didn't respond with antibodies. That is basically a false positive, right? So then we have like 63% of the people that actually had antibodies. So they were exposed to the disease. They developed antibodies, but yet they didn't spread it. That's pretty definitive um, evidence that it, doesn't happen or if it does happen it's very rare yeah now you couple that with the mask mandate studies which were intended to stop the spread of the disease from asymptomatic people and we see there's no difference so it's a very important point you put these two things together and you can say either masks don't make any difference or the spread from asymptomatic people doesn't happen. Yeah. You see? Yeah. It's, and, and, you know, what's interesting about that is, is this start then, you know, you look at the masks, like you mentioned, and it looks at stuff like the social distancing and it starts to ask the question, you know, why are these measures in place? Well, the measures would only really make sense if you had, obviously sick people. So people with symptoms, whether it be, you know, Hey, I have a fever. Or, hey, I have a runny nose. Or, hey, I have a obvious cough or whatever other symptoms that are severe that come along with COVID. Um, if those people, which who normally in the normal case of any flu or any illness, they usually stay home or they get bed rest or they do what they need to do. They don't go into work. We're now saying, well, you know what? The, even, even though that that's what we normally do now that, you know, everybody just has to you know, whether you're sick or not, you have to stay apart, um, regardless of what the science says. And um, as we're leading into this, this next one, I, I'm, I'm trying to do a little bit of on the spot research, because I, I'm trying to remember if this is fully true, because I, I had heard a lot of people claim this, and I'm not 100% sure what has happened here with this uh, World Health Organization definition of herd immunity, which leads into our, uh, our eighth point is the discussion a little bit of, you know, CDC recommending vaccinations, um, you know, 
for the you know for the purposes of of long term immunity. And um, one of the the claims that I had seen, and again, forgive me if I'm wrong here um, afterwards, but people had been saying that the World Health Organization had been changing their definition of what herd immunity is, and they sort of adjusted it from a uh, a, a, a definition that includes uh, wild virus. Uh, you know, whether you get the wild virus and you gain immunity beyond that. And if enough people get that wild virus, for example, then basically they're going to be immune as a herd, as a community. Um, And they kind of adjusted that to say that, no, herd immunity only occurs through vaccination. Now, that claim that they changed it, I'm not 100% sure if it's true, but I know a lot of people were saying it. So I'm going to try and figure that out. But with that in mind, you know, going into this point of the CDC here, um, suggesting that even people who got COVID-19 should still get vaccinated. Well, you know, break that, break that one down for us. This is a very um, important point um, because th- this is where I'm really scratching my head uh, about what the CDC is saying. And uh, you can find on their website, they are, they're saying that even if you had COVID, you should get the vaccine. Yeah. Don't even get your antibodies tested. Antibody testing is actually very important here because um, that's the way of, that's our basic way of determining whether or not you're immune to something. That's about as far, that's as much as we can possibly tell. If you have antibodies to something, you are immune. Yeah. Um, And they're saying, don't even get the antibody testing, get the vaccine. So this is a statement that is basically saying the vaccine is more efficacious in conferring immunity than exposure to the wild type virus. Mm-hmm. There has never been a vaccine ever that has matched our uh, natural immune response to being exposed. Yeah. For example, you go get a varicella vaccine. Varicella is the is the uh, virus that causes chickenpox. If you had chickenpox as a kid, do you ever go get a, a varicella vaccine? No, you're immune to it. Right. You know, we get boosters like tetanus, for example. But these are to to maintain the artificial immunity from the vaccine. Uh, so let's not get confused there. Like we, we, we get repeated vaccinations for the same disease, but that's because we have not been exposed to, we've never been sick from tetanus. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So now they're saying that, you know, if you've had COVID, you should still get a vaccination. And this goes counter to the, the fundamental principles of, um, of immune responses to attacks upon us. So I find that possibly the most uh, troubling aspect to the CDC position. Yeah. Telling us to get vaccinated, even though we've been exposed. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, one, one question I have with regards to that um, is, you know, similar to the flu virus, for example, where, you know, they're asking people to get it every year and they're, they're sort of selecting what, you know, they, they consider to be flu strains that they think are going to be the big strains for the upcoming flu season, which is, you know, really just like a whole marketing angle anyway. Um, but, uh, could they be viewing it in, in that way too, where they're saying, well, you know, this type of virus could be something that, that changes and season to season. And, you know, every year you're going to have to get one. Like, do you think that logic might be playing into it from uh, their perspective? Well, the reason why I don't believe that is that, you know, un- unless you've identified that the 
uh, virus has mutated and you have a vaccine that uh, accommodates that, there's no reason, like why would you get this the, the, the same vaccine if it's mutated? That doesn't right. make any sense, right? Yeah. So that's that. Does that make sense to you? Oh, um, it, to- it totally makes sense. I'm just I'm just trying to play devil's advocate and figure out how why would they would be suggesting something like this, <laughs> you know? That's what, I can't come up with a reason. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know why they would be suggesting that. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah. Um, you know, and I ask those uh, who are listening, if you've had COVID, I would really think twice before getting a vaccine. I, yeah. I don't know how many people here are going to get the vaccine, but. Probably uh, not many. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but as we, you know, examine the statements coming from the CDC, this is where I uh, am skeptical of their position. I'm not saying, yeah. here's the thing, I'm not saying that everything they say is absolutely wrong. Yeah. I am saying that this is a point to keep into consideration because this makes no sense right. at all. Yeah, and and generally there are, there are several points within so many of these um, recommendations. Uh, you know, they might have, let's say, 100 points and, and 10 of them are radically weird. Um, and the other 90 are kind of make sense and, and we can inject forms of bias of saying, well, look, they're, they're right on all these 90 um, and avoid the 10. Or we can say, look, they're wrong on all these 10 uh, and avoid the 90, right? Um, so like you're saying, question everything, um, which is, you know, be open-minded to everything essentially, um, which is important. Um, and this sort of leads into one of the points that has kind of been talked about a lot. Um, I don't know, you know, let's just, I guess we'll just leave it at that. It's been talked about a lot, um, which is the deaths, right? So there's, people have been saying, for example, that, you know, there haven't really been, you know, every COVID death or every death that's happening is sort of just being listed as a COVID death, right? Which we do know some of this is happening, right? People are getting labeled as a COVID death and it may not be a COVID death. And the, the dead giveaway is that, you know, there, there are not any more deaths now uh, than there would have been, or, you know, all the flu deaths are just being lumped under. So there's a little bit of um, some data uh, arguments going on here in terms of death numbers in the United States. You want to break down what you found as you uh, did a bunch of research on that? Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, the The thing that concerned me was uh, on social media, there are these tables showing deaths over the years. <clears throat> and um, how do we verify that? Well, you go to you go to the seat. First of all, there's no way to know. For us, there's no way to know how many people have died in this country. We have no idea. Only the CDC knows. And they can do whatever they want. They can report whatever they want. Yeah. Is there some inconsistency in what they're reporting? Is, is what they're saying... Does it prove that there is no increase in deaths or not? And what really troubled me was that, um, you know, these really nice tables appear in in Facebook uh, that show, you know, this is from the CDC and these are the deaths from 2015 onwards. And they show like, yeah, there's a small increase every year that reflects the growing population. Yeah. And how do we confirm that? Well, if you go to the CDC website, it is not so easy to pull this information out. Yeah. They allow you to do it. You have to use one of their data mining tools called Wonder, and you can access uh, that information. I would imagine that most people don't do that. They, you know, jump onto the CDC website and um, look for a table that you know summarizes the whole thing. Yeah, it's not there. You can you can find it though. So this is what I found: is that um, there is data that tells you how many people have died in the United States over the years. You can find that out. Yeah. And it's increasing. Usually 
I'll just read the numbers right here. You know, in 2015, it was about 2.7 uh, million, about 30,000 more in 2016, another 80,000 in 2017, and we keep climbing up. And if you go to 2020, we are now dealing with provisional death rates. Okay, so they haven't confirmed everything. They're still tabulating things. What numbers are there? And from what I could find, there's about 245,000 more deaths in the United States than would, would have been expected given the trends leading up to that year. Right. So it's extremely important, you know, when people say, oh, there, no, there hasn't been any more deaths this year than would have been expected. That's wrong. It could be right, but that's not what the CDC is saying. Right. Okay. So it is a, it is a wrong argument to say the CDC themselves are saying that, that, you know, uh, the death count hasn't changed. They're not. The CDC is reporting a quarter million deaths more than would have been expected. And so what is that due to, to COVID? I don't know, but it seems like it is right. I mean, that makes more sense. Well, so, so, so one know. question I would have is, um, is there any information with regards to the provisional numbers? So like you were saying, 2020, we don't yet have the official numbers. A lot of times that, that data is late and it gets sort of cleaned up. Is there a sense that provisional numbers are, are typically overestimated or underestimated? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, we, it's impossible to know. Um, and, and the truth here is, again, it's, it's, it's nuanced. Is it, uh, all from COVID or is it other things? Impossible to know just by reading a, a big table, you know, because yeah. um, they can label it anything they want to, but it poses an enormous question, which is why are a quarter million people dead now that shouldn't have been? And we have a pandemic. So this is an argument against the COVID-19 hoaxers who say it's just a fake virus. No, it's absolutely real. I mean, it, it is real and it kills people. Yeah. Um, and it is a big, big problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, again, you know, for someone who's looking for a definitive answer and everything, there isn't any definitive answer. Yeah. Um, but given what we know, it's real and it's devastating. Yeah. And, and this, but this, you know, it, it's interesting too, because it, you know, given what you just said, it also leads to the question of like, we have the, we have the evidence that, um, you know, COVID deaths are being labeled as COVID deaths without, um, without actually diagnosis. We have, um, you know, people that are obviously didn't die of COVID that were, were being labeled as being death with COVID. So people look at that information, which is fair, right? They look at that and they say, well, why is this happening? Why, why is World Health Organization? Why are uh, the CDC? Why is uh, mandates coming down that is allowing doctors to claim uh, a death as a, as, as a specific cause without even really finding out if that was a cause? So they're right in seeing all of that information. But, you know, the question does is when you take a more nuanced approach, what exactly is being said? And I think that's what you're alluding to here is, is, you know, where we can't just wipe every death with one brush and then say, oh, well, you know, none of them are actually COVID deaths and it's all just a, a, a you know, a bunch of malarkey. Um, but we also can't do it the other way around. So, you know, this nuanced position still has to, uh, at least at this point, determine why there's a, a quarter million more deaths. Correct. There's no other way to explain it, honestly. At this point, we have to assume it's COVID. The most interesting um, data point that we have uh, that would uh, argue that the numbers are being uh, inflated 
has to do, you know, again with this uh, interview that the uh, director of uh, the Illinois Department of Public Health made back in April, you know, where she said definitively, you know, so clearly that even people who are dying of other things, if they test positive, it's being counted as a COVID-19 death. Yeah. And right away, you know, it, it, it points to the fact that there is some element of inflation of the numbers. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't explain why 245,000 extra people died this year. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because even if you try and break that down a little bit, you, you go, well, you know, there's been an increase in suicides, for example. Right. So uh, we know that the lockdowns have caused a lot of people to not feel, you know, the greatest lack of uh, community, uh, lack of community, lack of connection, all these sorts of things. And, and you know, suicides have increased. Um, but then again, you have things like have have car accidents decreased. You know, if there's less people going out and about, could we assume that maybe car accidents? So what I'm what I'm trying to get at is, is there's so many factors that can push and pull those numbers in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um which still, I you know, I think is 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 kind of complicated, but um, it's an interesting point. It's an interesting point to consider for sure. Yeah. So, Joe, I, I think the the most important, well, a lot of important points here. But <laughs> when we when we talk about this, you know, the, like we're at a place right now where uh, the kinds of conversations we have around this are very important. And my fear is that if you are, uh, you know, a CDC denier and you come at it with the argument that, oh, no, there hasn't been any more deaths this year. Yeah. Uh, so therefore we should ignore everything the CDC is saying. You're going to lose a lot of, a, a ton of people because the data so sh- says that you're wrong if you believe that. Yeah. Um, and here, here's another point, you know, when the argument is, uh, you know, doctors have been uh, incentivized to put COVID-19 on their death certificate. That I don't believe is true. Um, hmm. The CDC has come out very, very clearly in, in saying, like, this is how you should fill out a death certificate. And um, the, the, the distortion, if there is a distortion going on, doesn't come from the doctor's handwritten note. It comes from how the CDC is tabulating the death certificates. Mm-hmm. Is it... COVID being the underlying cause, and then you, you know, tally it off as a COVID death, or is it a contributing factor? How is that being interpreted? That's outside the doctor's hands or the healthcare's hands. It, it, it's, it goes into the, you know, the, the, the construction of the databases in the CDC. They can do whatever they want to. Right. Um, so I'm not, I'm not insinuating or uh, um, implying that they're, they are intentionally changing things. Uh, I'm saying that we just don't know. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky because a lot of people would push back on that and say something to the effect of, um, you know, there, you have hospitals that are, um, that do get more in terms of, um, funding if they have a COVID diagnosis or if they put somebody on a ventilator and they're saying that the incentivization, uh, for the hospital, is that, um, you know, there's potentially more financial gain um, in terms of getting money back for, for treatments and, and so on and so forth. Um, would you, you know, based on what you just said there, would you classify that as a uh, incentive or are you saying that maybe it's a little bit, again, more nuanced than that? 
Well, I, I still, you know, I'm, I'm a physician and I, um, I have a lot of uh, respect for the integrity of other physicians. And I've never really, you know, had an explicit situation in my 20 years of practice where, where doctors are doing things for money, you know, right. despite the, 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 the um, stereotypical arguments like, oh, they're just doing that to get extra cash. I haven't seen it. Um, and so in this situation, I, I would tend to I'd be skeptical when people start attacking healthcare givers for being incentivized by money to do the wrong thing. Yep. Maybe it happens and there's a huge, you know, uh, uh, structure to prevent that from happening right now. So I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't want to use the argument and I, I, I implore people not to use that as a argument against the numbers uh, to say that, you know, doctors and hospitals are, are creating this themselves. They're not in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Well said. Well, I mean, it's been a, it's been an interesting breakdown here of, of a lot of different things. Hopefully people have a little bit more clarity around uh, not only the vaccine, but uh, some other pieces to the COVID puzzle here. Uh, do you have any final uh, words that you want to throw down here? Yeah. Um, the last thing I would like, I would just like to summarize by saying the takeaway point here is that it's not cut and dry. And I'm concerned about the way the CDC is talking about vaccine recommendations. And this is in, 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 uh, in the context of how resistant they have been to looking at alternative treatments. Mm -hmm. This is a point that uh, was not one of our nine points, but <clears throat> if you go back and look at how the guidelines for treatment, the suggested guidelines for treatment coming out of the CDC has changed, they've been extremely, there's so much inertia uh, around using other tried and true medications to help patients who are suffering from COVID. Yep. For example, um, it was shown very early on that steroid treatments, corticosteroids, uh, especially at the end stages of uh, a COVID um, treatment plan were extremely effective. And yet the CDC took a long time before they put dexamethasone or steroids on their um, suggested guidelines for treatment. Yep. Then there was the, you know, just um, absolute resistance they had to uh, hydroxychloroquine yeah. that has been shown to be very effective at the right dose, which is not how the CDC looked at it. They, you know, looked at a high dose regimen, which could be very um, uh, dangerous. And then they use that to dismiss that. Uh, they've been shockingly resistant to vitamin treatments, mm -hmm. sort of dismissing that as oh, that's like how how you know sorbic acid could be possibly you know dangerous to someone who's dying of a very lethal disease uh, is inexplicable to me. Yeah. And then we have the ivermectin studies. Yeah. Where we have acute care physicians imploring the CDC to not necessarily get behind ivermectin, but at least form a task force yeah. to examine the data, because we have lots of data that says ivermectin is extremely powerful, not just as a treatment, but as a prophylactic, yeah. a prophylaxis. So this is the nuanced, nuanced argument is like, why is the CDC pushing um, antivirals that are, that are very expensive? Why are, push, why are they pushing a vaccine that has not been completely tested? Yet, why are they so resistant to things that can actually make a difference that are safe? 
this to me is um, it, it. This is where I have doubts about the intent of what the CDC's messages are saying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, going back to that, that nuanced argument, it's important. I mean, this is, I think what, what pushes a lot of people and, you know, including ourselves to, to explore what are the possible agendas here? Like, you know, if they're not talking about certain things that are so obviously potential treatments, you know, it begs the question if, you know, is the CDC uh, or the World Health Organization or other uh, powerful individuals, are they really looking to They've, hey, they've already invested, people have already invested a ton of money into this vaccine. Are they looking to gain back that money and make sure that that is the product that's used so that the money's there? Like, it's hard not to go there when you see so much of what's going on. And yet, when people do that, they're almost gaslit into thinking, well, no, you're just a conspiracy theorist, which is, it's not, not really a, that's not really addressing any of the people's concerns. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we know this, like, <clears throat> this is generally known that if there's an incentive, especially a monetary incentive, a material incentive uh, for you to hold on to opinion, you must recuse yourself from making a decision. You know, this goes for judges. It goes for, you know, professional athletes that have something that, you know, they can't wager on sports. Yeah. Know that if there's some material incentive for an outcome that we have to assume that there's bias in how they're making their decisions. Yeah. And yet we grant the CDC uh, immunity from that kind of bias, despite the fact that, you know, there's a, a great deal of uh, uh, relationship between pharmaceutical companies and uh, the CDC mandates and the FDA, you know, like to think that there's so that they're completely independent and uh, making uh, objective decisions about our population's health without taking into account the monetary gains uh, and favoritism is, is naive. Yeah. Well, well, well said as always. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to follow this, I guess, as we, as we know more, but uh, you know, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, and doing this and, and breaking down. And like I say, hopefully people have uh, a little bit to think about here. And I think they do. I do too. Thank you for the platform. Thank you for letting me uh, get this message out and, um, stay sharp that's it that's all (laughs) thanks so much for listening to this episode of the ce show if you have a moment consider passing this show on to a friend or family member who you think would relate to this type of conversation bringing community together in these conversations is key and you'll find these days people are a lot more receptive to these emerging ideas and perceptions than they may have been in the past Lastly, visit ctv.one and consider becoming a member of our community where you get access to a ton of video content, including original shows, discussions, and courses to help you make sense of the world and transform how you show up in life. Visit ctv.one to learn more.